morning. It's good to have you here. We're going to continue on in the series. As you're turning there, I was thinking about those awkward circumstances in life where you see someone and you know the face, but you can't remember the name. Does that happen to you? Does this seem to happen more to you, like as you advance in life? You see someone, what makes it worse is when they know you and you don't know them. And you're just hoping. I have these moments where you have someone and you're like, I know who you are. I recognize your face. And, and so you got to find someone around you that they don't know and introduce them. Right? So that, that's kind of the trick, right? So, so I don't know you. Like, if I, if I, didn't, if I didn't remember Kyrie, I'd grab Silas. Like, hey, hey, this is my friend Silas. And this is her cue to say, hi, I'm Kyrie. But sometimes that person goes, hi, waiting for me to introduce her back. And I'm like, I don't remember your name. Does that ever happen to anybody? Super awkward. Well, we're, we're reading about a guy today in Hebrews 7 that uh, was kind of a mysterious figure in the Bible, that the author of Hebrews wants to remind these Christians who were the early Jewish Christians. Now, I'm not going to give all the context of Hebrews. Go back and listen to part one of this message from last week on YouTube, on our church app, on a podcast somewhere. But he's introducing this guy, and he's reminding them of this guy's name, that there was this person that they knew. Oh, I heard of that guy. I've I've, I've heard stories. I don't really know who in the world this guy is, but I've heard about him. And, uh, and so he's, he's bringing back this name of remembrance. He's reintroducing these early Jewish Christians to this figure. His name is Melchizedek. And as last week we looked at the high priesthood of Jesus and all the characteristics that he demonstrated, He says in Hebrews 5.10, Jesus was designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, this is a different order of priests, a different kind of priest, higher than even Aaron. Now, last week, we we were trying to resolve this issue to the Jewish Christians. How in the world can you say Jesus is a priest if he wasn't a Levite, if he wasn't from the tribe of Aaron? How is this even possible? Because we know if you are going to teach us, if you are going to preach to us that Jesus is the high priest... He clearly has to come from this line, from this ancestry. And the author of Hebrews is saying, no, there's a different priesthood. There's a different order. There's a different kind of priest. But what's really cool is that he begins to allude even to and hint to something greater, that Jesus might have even been more than just a different kind of priest. He might have even been the priest. And so we look back, all the way back to Genesis today, and we are going to go and look at what he's talking about and how that connects the story of Jesus, the high priest. So we're going to go Hebrews 7, 1 through 7, 17. We'll start with 1 through 3. Follow along in your Bibles, your church app. You've got notes in there. It says, For this Melchizedek, the king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, And then he is also the king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So if we're going to understand what actually happened, we've got to go rewind for a moment. I'm going to go to Genesis chapter 14. You're welcome to join me in Genesis chapter 14. I'm going to read you just a few verses, because we need to understand 
again, we've talked about this several times before, as non-Jewish Christians, we don't have all the background story, but those who he was writing to in the book of Hebrews would have heard all of these stories, would have known this. This is, the book of Genesis is part of the Torah. It's part of the, the, the books that they really knew, the Jewish people really knew. And so referencing back, here's the backstory in Genesis chapter 14. It says that in verse 17, after his return from the defeat, now, now I'm going to back up, we'll time out for just a second. He, 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 we're in this situation right here, Abraham. Anyone heard of Abraham before? Okay, so at this point, his name's no Abram. And, and Abraham and his nephew Lot had separated. They had gone different ways, and Abraham said to Lot, pick which land you want to choose. Now Lot chose to live in a place called Sodom. It was a Canaanite city. It was very wicked. It was a terrible... Do you guys know that story? Sodom and Lot, and then they had to flee, and Lot's wife got salty because she didn't want to leave and all that kind of stuff. All right, so that's the story. Now, before that happened, there was, there was this situation in which there were some, a bunch of cities that were paying tribute to a certain king. And, and this king... After 12 years, these people rebelled. They said, we're not going to serve you anymore, probably paying some kind of a tax or some kind of tribute. They said, we're done. We're not paying you anymore. So this king and some of his allies came to all these cities and completely decimated them. That'll teach you not to honor me and to pay tribute to me. And in the process, Lot was captured. Abraham's nephew and all of his family. So Abraham heard about it. He gathered up some guys, attacked them, and rescued Lot and all of his stuff. All right? So what happens then in verse uh, 18, it says that actually in verse 17, the king of Sodom went out to meet him. And then in verse 18, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine and blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by, by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. So, so here he gets this visit from two kings. Well, this is an interesting situation in itself. He gathers up his own guys and goes after and rescues his family. And two kings from this region come out, all in this Canaanite region. The first king that came to visit him was the king of Sodom. And to the king of Sodom, Abraham said, I want nothing to do with you. Get out of my face. And read it, it's kind of, that's paraphrased, but essentially you're wicked, you're terrible, I don't want anything to do with you. And he says, get away from me. And then the king of Salem comes out, Melchizedek, and Melchizedek prays a blessing over Abraham, and Abraham actually acknowledges him as a priest in this moment, and he tithes to him. And we don't see this name of this king, Melchizedek, come up again until Psalm 110. And in Psalm 110, you have David writing this prophetic psalm that is a word from the Lord regarding the future Messiah to God's people. He's writing this messianic prophecy in Psalm 110 about the coming one who will come and rescue. And in Psalm 110 is where it comes, if you read Hebrews 5 and Hebrews 7 in your Bibles, you see all these quotes if you see that in there, all those little quotes coming through those two chap uh, chapters, Hebrews 5 and 7, those are all right out of Psalm 110, directly quoting the Old Testament scripture, which was considered prophecy by the Jews of Jesus. And so Jesus is this king. He is this priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So we'll come back to that. Let's continue on in 
Hebrews 7. Is that backstory? Is everybody on the same page? Are we all up to speed? Now we know what happened. Okay. So he continues on in Hebrews 7, verse 4. He says, See how this great man, Melchizedek, was, was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who, who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are also descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. That's the person that has a higher rank, the person who is more important, who has more power, more authority, blesses the one with less. All right? I don't know the last time you gave your boss a bonus. Maybe your boss never gave you a bonus. But generally, it works in that direction, right? So you're going to get blessed, and that's kind of how that works, is setting up this, this process. The, and so he goes on to say that in the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. For we, he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. We'll come back to that concept a little bit more here in a moment. But we have to ask this question and have to answer this question before we go on, who in the world is Melchizedek? Who is this guy? Who is this guy who we don't see anything about? We see him once in Genesis chapter 14. We see him, his name in Psalm 110 in the prophecy about the coming Messiah and then nothing until Hebrews. And all of a sudden, he's all over the place. He talks about him in length. So let's look at what we know from our text. Who is Melchizedek? The first thing we know is what we don't know. There's no genealogy. There's no record of him. Nobody knows much about him. He, uh, there is no record. Now, if you know anything about the Jewish people of this time, they were very, very particular and consistent in keeping genealogical records. That's why you, go, you read through Numbers. It's a book of genealogical records. It's just so many records. But there's no record of Melchizedek. There's no record of his father or his mother, only that he existed. He doesn't have a birth date that anyone can find. And he doesn't seem to have died either, which is strange. He joins a very exclusive club of people who have never died. Enoch and Elijah, the only other ones, they went directly to be with God. So in summary, here's what we know so far about Melchizedek. No one knows where he came from or where he went. That's it. And that wouldn't seem to matter. I, why I bring it up is because the author of Hebrews wants us to know that for a reason. He goes into a bit of detail about that. The second thing that we know, finally we do know something, is that he was a king. He was the king of Salem in the Canaanite region. And as I said, this culture in this area was very corrupt. And we see from Abraham's conversation with God in Genesis 18, now we go back to this whole lot, and his wife, and all that story. Before God destroyed Sodom, Abraham had a lengthy conversation with the Lord, saying, God, if I can find 20, 30, 20, 10 people in this region who aren't wicked and who serve you, will you spare them? And he, he's talking with God about not destroying Sodom, and the number keeps going down until, God, can I just find like 10 people? So that tells us that in this region, where this guy Melchizedek was a king, there were very few people that believed in and honored God as the Lord Most High. And so we have a king who worshiped God, 
which was very unusual for this time period, very unusual for this region, and it's very surprising. But even more surprising is that Melchizedek is actually a priest. And we see that in Genesis, and we see that here in Hebrews 7 as well. Melchizedek was a priest, a priest in the middle of this dark place. Now, here's what we don't know. We don't know how he knew about God. We don't know how he discovered who God was. There was lots of priests in the time, but they were priests that were leading people into evil things and dark things, into the occultic practices. But we do, we, we just know that he was a priest. And one of the things we know about his priesthood is that it never expired. In Psalm 110, David calls his priesthood a forever priesthood. So apparently the priesthood of Melchizedek never ended. So we don't know where he came from. We don't know where he went. We don't know how he became a priest or heard about God, but we know he was a priest. And in the hearts and minds of the people who he's writing to in Hebrews, Melchizedek is still a priest. He always has been. There's something really special about this mystery man. This, he was a king priest or a priest king. Israel had no one like this. It was not a thing. In Israel, God's people either had a priest or they had a king, but you could not be both. It was one or the other. And there was a line of priests from the tribe of Levi, and there was a, there was a line of kings from the tribe of Judah. And so you had these separate offices and roles, but never together. In fact, the very first king of Israel, Saul, he got in a lot of trouble. He, he lost his throne because he decided one day to perform the priestly duties and be impatient because the priest was running late that day. And that didn't work out. He lost the throne. So to the Israelites reading this, this is a different kind of priest, a different kind of concept, one who was a king and a priest. So who is Melchizedek, really? And this is what this whole section of text is richly trying to explore and to process, is why is Jesus, in this text, so thoroughly being compared to Melchizedek? That's a question that you and I should try to answer as we read the Bible. Why is there so much time and attention spent on someone who we really know very little about, and why is he spending so much time and attention comparing Jesus to this priest? Well, let's continue on and we'll discover the answer to that. It says in verse 11, Now if perfection had been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there be for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with the tribe, Moses says nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident with another priest, when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him... You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Again, Psalm 110. And so now we have this comparison being put into Scripture right here. Jesus is like Melchizedek. This is the takeaway. This is the lesson for today. This is what we're going to take away from this passage that he wants us to understand. In this scenario that he's setting up for his readers. Now remember, again, the early Jewish Christians under persecution... Many considering it would be easier to go back to the 
Old Testament law. It'd be easier to go back, just go to the temple, have a priest perform the sacrifices, and just go and worship God the easy, safe way for me. Jesus brought a new something, he wants us to know, a new priesthood. So Jesus is like Melchizedek. There's never been a priest like him until Jesus. And Jesus, he's telling us in Hebrews 7, is the fulfillment of Psalm 110. This is what he wants his readers to clearly understand. You believe in the messianic prophecy that David wrote in Psalm 110. Now, here's what I need you to know. Jesus is the fulfillment of that prophecy. He is a royal priest like Melchizedek. Jesus is someone who is outside the Levitical priesthood, even though, as we discovered last week, he has all of the traits, all the characteristics. He identifies with us. He is compassionate. But he is someone who isn't bound by the law of Moses and his regulations. Now, at minimum, he's telling us here that Melchizedek was a foreshadowing of Jesus, like a picture, like a story, like something that he came so that we could see the kind of priest that Jesus would be. And the similarities between Melchizedek and Jesus that he draws in this text are uncanny. It's amazing, really, when you begin to dig into this comparison. And so because this is all written in, in a long paragraph, form, I'm going to just kind of break it down step by step. The first similarity that he brings up is that both Jesus and Melchizedek have no beginning and they have no end. No beginning and no end. In verse 16, we just read that Jesus became priest by an indestructible life. It is a forever life. No beginning and no end. We know that Jesus is eternal. He always has been. He always will be. We know Melchizedek had neither beginning of days nor end of life, our text says. All right? Jesus said in 22, Revelation 22, 13, he said, I am the beginning and the end. I define beginning and I define end. And so they have these two things in common. There's no beginning and there's no end of days. The second thing they have in common is that they were both, get this, kings of Salem. Both Melchizedek and Jesus were kings of Salem. After the Israelites conquered Canaan, the promised land, so remember the promised land, that was the land of Canaan that God gave his people. After they conquered that land, Salem, where Melchizedek was the king of, was renamed by the Israelites to Jerusalem. Same exact spot, same place, same city, Jerusalem. And Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey fulfilling the prophecy of Jesus the king in Matthew 21, 5. He was called the king of the Jews. And the author reminds us he was from the tribe of Judah, which is the line of kings. Two people, no beginning, no end. Kings, the same city. The next thing we learn is that he was the king of righteousness. We see that Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness. Jesus in Romans 3.22 is called the righteousness of God. Next, we see that Melchizedek was called the king of peace. Well, Ephesians 2.14 tells us that Jesus himself is our peace. He told his disciples, my peace I leave to you. And if that's not enough, this is a, such a great argument in Scripture. If that's not enough that they have all those things in common, he even goes as far to say that they're both the Son of God. 
Huh, interesting. Did you catch that? It says here, we know that Jesus is the Son of God. Are we good on that? Are we clear? Okay, we're all on the same page. In Hebrews 7.3, what does it say about Melchizedek? He resembles the Son of God, and he continues to be a priest forever. What is happening with Melchizedek and Jesus? I wonder, as I read this, is he really trying to say that Jesus is like Melchizedek, or is he saying something much more bold and something much more daring? something much more controversial, something more mind-blowing. Maybe he's not just saying that Jesus is like Melchizedek or that Melchizedek is like Jesus, but Melchizedek may have actually been Jesus, he wants them to know. Melchizedek may have actually been Jesus. Now, how is that even possible? That this, this person in the Old Testament we know very little about who meets a perfect description and qualifications of Jesus himself, how is that possible? that Jesus could potentially be this person. Well, we see in Genesis 18, a few chapters later, you know, Abraham actually hosted angels at his house and fed them a meal. So somehow, somehow, a spiritual being in the Old Testament was able to take on the form of a human, of man. We see several places in the Old Testament and if you've never studied this before, I'll do a, i got to do a sermon series on this sometime because it's so awesome. We see a pre-incarnate Jesus show up. So we see Jesus show up in a few places, several, I'll name a couple of them. The fiery furnace. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in the furnace, and they don't burn up. And Nebuchadnezzar says, I see someone like the Son of God in with them. Jesus in the furnace. We see Jesus wrestling with Jacob in the Old Testament. Jacob says, I've wrestled with God himself. He has wrestled with God. We look in the Old Testament, we see a very specific reference, not just angels showing up, but we see this reference, the angel of the Lord. And so often in the Old Testament, we see the angel of the Lord showing up. That angel of the Lord may have been Jesus himself. Remember, Jesus didn't just start to exist when Mary gave birth, or when Mary was, had conceived but Jesus has always been. He is the beginning and he is the end. And oddly enough, if you study your Bible and if you find it and I'm wrong, tell me about it. I'd love to know. But after Jesus is born, there's never a reference past his birth in the Bible where the angel of the Lord shows up. Never happens after that point. So there's something about this pre-incarnate Jesus showing up. It's interesting now, you can have your personal opinion. I don't think at the end of the day it matters all too much. As I study this week, I, I start to feel a little more strongly that I think Melchizedek was actually Jesus. Who knows how long he was king? Who knows where he came from? Now, he might not have been. It doesn't really matter. It's not really a salvation issue. <laughs> but what he wants us to see is that there is this person of Jesus that is found in the person of Melchizedek, whether it was Jesus or whether you can place Jesus right on top of Melchizedek and, and see Jesus in him. The message he, sa he sends is this, Jesus has always been the highest priest. He always has been. Imagine preaching this to someone 
who has another whole system of priesthood, and he's saying, look, Jesus has always been the high priest. He's always been the highest priest. There's never been anyone higher. There's never been anyone greater. If Abraham bowed to him, you should bow too. Now, they had respect for Abraham. He was the, he was the guy. He was the forefather. And to show that Jesus is so much far superior a priest than anyone in the line of Abraham, the author launches into a dissertation on the principle of tithing. It's an interesting and unique and maybe unconventional and maybe not the way I would have chosen to present the argument, but he, he chooses to present this argument about who Jesus is and how he's always been the highest, and he uses tithing, which is something that was very familiar to them, as his argument. And he says this, everything flows to Jesus and everything flows from Jesus. So here's what he says. We'll just give a recap. He says that God's people tithed to the Levites. Did you see? That was in the text, verses 4 through 10 in that section. And he says, since the Levites descended from Abraham, the tithes that the Levites collected were in a sense paid through Abraham to Melchizedek. Because it always goes up to the chain, to the highest authority. So he says, oh, and he also says that how tithing works is this, reminding them that Abraham gave a tithe and received a blessing. So the giver of the tithe gives to the, the one who they submit to in authority, and they receive a blessing from the one who they give the tithe to. So in a sense, he's telling them, Abraham actually tithed to Jesus and received a blessing from Jesus. This is the message he's trying to communicate to these people. So he says, when any of Abraham's descendants tithe, the same exact thing occurs. If any of Abraham's descendants tithes, the same thing occurs. There's a tithe that is given to Jesus, and there is a blessing received from Jesus. This is the principle he's teaching them in this moment. Now, this is kind of cool because in Galatians 3.29, it says, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So that means that when we tithe, we too are tithing through Abraham to Melchizedek or Jesus. That when we give unto the Lord, it's not just an obligation. When we tithe to the church in our hearts, we tithe to Jesus. Now, if you don't have that right in your heart, tithe doesn't become worship anymore. It becomes obligation. It becomes something that it's not supposed to be, but we are called to tithe to the Lord in worship to Jesus. And he, he lays this out so fully here in Hebrews. And I know this is a sidebar. I totally get it. But I want you to understand the blessing that comes from Jesus. The blessing that comes like Abraham received a blessing, that we received a blessing. But, but I'm going to get back to the main, main idea, but I, I, I went off on this sidebar because this is the argument he uses and he finds it so important. And I've talked to so many people that says, yeah, tithing is just an Old Testament principle. It's part of the law and it doesn't apply anymore. If you've ever heard someone say that it's not even in the New Testament, well, now you know. It's so thoroughly laid out in detail here. And so I digress back to the the main point of what we're trying to get out of this today. But I think it's important because this is what he wants them to understand, that everything comes to us that we pass on and ultimately goes to Jesus. And he wants them to so clearly understand this. If you ever considered your life in following Jesus, since Abraham submitted to the highest priest of all, you should do the same. That's what he wants them to know. 
If Abraham submitted to the highest priest, you should do the same. Every priest in all of Israel's history, he says, bows a knee to Jesus. Every priest. He's the highest priest. He was yesterday, today, and forever. There's no sense in going back to anything else. And as we walk in our lives today, serving Jesus, he has to become more than a belief system. He has to become more than something, someone that I run to when it's hard, and we should run to him when it's hard. But what, he, what Jesus is to us is what Melchizedek was to Abraham, someone who you bow a knee to. Someone who you say, I will worship you. Abraham didn't come to Melchizedek in a place of need and desperation. He came to Melchizedek in a place of victory. And he said, in my victory, I worship you. In my victory, I give to you. And in our lives, as we follow Jesus, as we live our lives, is Jesus the highest priest? Is he who we go to? Is he the one that when we celebrate, when we have victory, when we have disappointment, whatever it is, that we look to the highest priest, when we're trying to live our lives for ourselves and trying to decide, do I go this way or this way? Do we bow a knee to the highest priest of all Jesus and worship him? He calls us to live a new and living way. And he says right here in the text, it's almost like the final closing argument although there's lots more, we're going to get to it, but he could have ended here. We're going to be done today. When I say we're going to get to it, I don't mean you're going to be here for another three or four hours. That's like, come back for the next several weeks. There's a higher priest. You can let go of all your misconceptions. You can let go of what you thought church was. You can let go of the hurt that you had when you were young. You can let go from that Christian who judged you. You can let go of your need to go and find someone who you have to repent to besides Jesus. Well, sometimes you just got to go to a brother and say, will you just pray with me because I got to repent to the Lord. And that's scriptural too. There is a higher way. Because there is a higher priest, there is a higher way. You don't have to go through all this stuff. It's not based on your works. It's not based on someone else, some other priest, some other pastor, someone else stepping in and saying, will you pray for me that God will forgive me? You don't need me for that. You can have your relationship with God. You go to the high priest. You need healing in your life. You go to the high priest. You go to the highest priest. You struggling with depression, you go to the highest priest. You dealing with an addiction, you go to the highest priest. And because there's a higher priest, there's a higher way, a new and living way, a way to the Father, the presence of God through Jesus. He is the highest priest and he is all you need. And I just imagine the early church reading this for the first time, just just so conflicted and stuck with trying to like, how do we worship God or how do we feel okay? And we have a totally different set of issues. How do I get peace in my day? How do I cope? How do I handle my stress? How, what, what are all my options? And he says, there's really one option. Take a knee to the highest priest of all, Jesus. And in your life, when you submit to Jesus, everything else starts to make sense. It, it, it's not a life 
of I'm going to go do what I want and then I'm going to feel bad one day and say, but the Bible says, for I know the plans I have for you, the Lord plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Amen. Jesus, I receive it. Hallelujah. Okay, you guys want to go out drinking tomorrow night? No, I submit my life to the highest priest in the new and living way. That I decide I'm going to live by his ways and not my own. And I'm going to look to him in that highest esteem. He is the priest and he is the king. King of kings and Lord of lords. And so if you would stand with me, we're going to sing this chorus. All hail King Jesus, I think is what we're going to sing. And Pastor Mike's going to lead us. And I, I want us to just, even in this moment, you might want to take a knee, bow on your knees. You might want to just stand. Or it doesn't matter the posture, but would you just put yourself in a posture of response this morning? to really get a hold of this idea that Jesus is the highest. You don't need another coping mechanism. You don't need anything else. You don't need another set of rules. You don't need to be enough. You already are enough because you have a high priest who made a way. So Jesus, we come to you this morning and we thank you. We thank you for this picture of Melchizedek in the Old Testament, this king of righteousness, this king of peace. It's one with no beginning and no end. We thank you, Jesus, that you are the same yesterday, today, today, and forever. We thank you that we can look to you and that no matter what we face, we know you're higher still. We know that you have authority over it. The things that seem to hold the most power over us, Jesus, we know that you hold power over those things. And so, God, as we surrender to you today, we declare out those addictions, those thoughts, those struggles, they must surrender to the highest one. They must surrender to the King of kings and Lord of lords. We turn to you, Jesus, and we worship you. In Jesus' name, let's worship you.